0: That's kind of conversation between your soul. That's conversation between soul. and gonna... Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison, and we are excited to bring you the news. Derek, let's start with, uh, unfortunately, very grim news, uh, and that is coming out of Gaza, uh, the Thursday uh, attack that Israel has enacted.
1: Yeah, well, not not according to them, but uh, I think we can draw our own conclusions. Um, There was uh, a you know i hate to single out any particular atrocity uh, among the grand atrocity that's taking place in in gaza but uh this one was pretty bad uh, there was uh, apparently a crowd of people in gaza city on thursday uh the fact that they're in gaza city should tell you that they are starving because everybody remaining in gaza city is starving uh they're being starved i shouldn't say they're starving they are being starved they, they approached uh, one of the very irregular aid convoys that actually gets into northern gaza these days uh, apparently in in large numbers uh, a group of israeli soldiers who were positioned uh, i suppose to protect the convoy hard to say really uh decided that this mob of starving people this this large group of starving people uh, approaching the trucks was a threat and began opening fire uh, now, the Israelis say they only fired warning shots. That doesn't jive with the fact that uh, a number of people uh, suffered from gunshot wounds in the aftermath of this incident. Uh, at least uh, 112 people were killed, uh, more than 750 wounded. This is according to uh, the health authorities in Gaza. Uh, as I said, the, the Israeli military uh, has its own story here, which is that uh, these people uh, began to mob the delivery trucks, the convoy, basically implying that they they were looting the convoy, which uh, seems to elide the fact that, again, they're starving, uh, that the IDF is starving them. And then, uh, so, you know, they, they look like a threat. They seem like a threat to these Israeli soldiers, so they shot some warning shots. Uh, and what happened was a stampede ensued, and people were killed, uh, they were trampled, or they were run over by the panicked truck drivers in the convoy. Again, this, this elides the fact that, the stampede, uh, to the extent that there was one, and they've released some some uh, aerial vi- footage of this, uh, began because of the gunfire. Uh, so that's, that's one teeny problem with this story. Uh, the other one, as I said, is that people were shot. Uh, so these were not just clearly not just warning shots. It happened at 4 a.m. as Egyptian aid trucks arrived in Gaza City. The sound of gunfire on this footage aired by Al Jazeera as Gazans who'd come to gather aid began to flee. And afterward, residents walk away with bags of food surrounded by the injured. So, yeah, that's all we know at this point. There's been a condemnation coming from from uh, all over the place across the Arab world, Uh, even Europe, uh, condemning the Israelis for this incident, for uh, clearly opening fire on a crowd of starving people. The response from the Biden administration, unsurprisingly, has been uh, to talk about how troubling this is and to meekly, humbly ask the Israelis if they might uh, someday get around to investigating it if it's not too much trouble. So about what you would expect uh, from the Biden administration. And uh, as I say, that's, uh, that's where things stand.
0: So, Derek, this might be a naive question, but does seem this seems to be a particularly aggressive act. Is there any understanding as to how this happened? Because why would Israel, I mean, geostrategically, I guess, thinking maybe that's not the right way to view this. But do you see what I'm saying?
1: I I don't think it is. I mean, I think it's um, a, a group of soldiers who. You know, may have panicked or may have just seen a target of opportunity and decided to open up on it. I don't think it's, okay. it's a I don't think geostrategy is uh, it, this the is thing ta- to think ta- about tactical. here. This, yeah, is, yeah, yeah. this is just a this is just an atrocity. I mean, this yeah, is yeah, just yeah. a, a mass. Just like uh, the, the, uh, the kind line. of thing that happens yeah, yeah, in yeah, a yeah. conflict where you've dehumanized uh, the, the, the civilian population that you're uh, attacking to the extent that you don't really even see them as as uh, human beings or worth uh, any kind of consideration
0: is there anything coming out
1: of israel itself that you've seen uh other than the the party line which uh as i said was that this was all kind of an unfortunate circumst series of events uh that uh, like a mistake was caused no? by these uh, you yeah, know sort of a mistake but sort of you know caused by these reckless starving people who mobbed the trucks in the first place and yep. really shouldn't have done that because uh tisk tisk how inappropriate uh, for starving people to race toward to some indication of food uh that's that's the only thing i've seen okay um
0: let's move on to the ceasefire talks after that incredibly grim update
1: uh yeah we're we're supposed to believe that there's been some progress in ceasefire talks over the past week or so and uh joe biden on monday uh while he was uh getting ice cream with uh seth meyer i wish i was making that up but i'm not shouted out to reporters basically or he responded to a question that was shouted to him uh saying that he was hoping uh there would would be a ceasefire deal in place within the next week so by by this coming monday that there would be a ceasefire deal in place
0: well i hope by the the beginning of the weekend i mean the end of the weekend at least my 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 national security advisor tells me that we're close we're close it's not done yet and my hope is by next Monday, we'll have a ceasefire.
1: Uh, Hamas and the Israeli government uh, and pretty much everybody else involved in the ceasefire negotiations on Tuesday responded to that by saying, we have no idea what the hell Joe Biden is talking about. There's no deal that's, that's anywhere close to being completed. You know, I, you, you can chalk that up to gamesmanship, I guess. But, but uh, Biden himself, uh, after the incident on Thursday in Gaza City, Told reporters that you know, gee whiz, I don't, I don't. Maybe things aren't going to get done uh, by next Monday, after all. And so the 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 obvious conclusion to draw here is that uh, he was bullshitting people because Monday was, of course, one day before the Michigan primary, and he was hoping to minimize the embarrassment from a protest vote in that primary. So I think he was just lying his uh, his ass off, uh, and that's that's where things stand. With with you know, there is a deal, a uh, framework. Uh, that's on the table. Uh, it involves a first phase of around uh, six weeks uh, that would see a, a, something like thirty-five to forty hostages uh, released uh, in return for a large number of uh, Palestinians being held uh, by these Is- by the Israeli government. Uh, there could be a potential to extend that, uh, but it, this does it doesn't meet uh, you know some of the demands that we've seen from. Uh, Hamas, it's it's very tilted toward the Israelis. Let's say it it doesn't meet the the, the calls for a path to a permanent ceasefire. It doesn't meet uh, calls for uh, the Israeli military to withdraw from Gaza during the ceasefire. There is some uh, allowance for redeployments outside of populated areas to to other parts of Gaza, but not a uh, not a withdrawal. So there still seems to be a lot of disagreement here, and in particular. Uh, you know, not uh, on those issues as well as on. Uh, I don't even know that they've broached, frankly, the idea uh, or the, the the issue of which Palestinians the Israeli government would be freeing. And, and Hamas has been asking for uh, some really prominent uh, people, like Marwan Barghouti, who was arrested during the Second Intifada, uh, just really well known uh, people who are are in Israeli prison on you know terrorism charges effectively and the israeli government is uh reluctant to 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 go down that road
0: what about the post-war plan that netanyahu revealed
1: uh yeah this was uh late last week so like late thursday friday was when uh, the reporting on this really kicked in Net- uh, benjamin netanyahu presented his day after plan to the war cabinet the security cabinet and it was pretty much what you would expect. It called for effectively an indefinite reoccupation, military occupation uh, of Gaza, Uh, the creation of a buffer zone on the Gazan side of the the security barrier. Uh, No role for either Hamas or the Palestinian Authority as governing bodies in Gaza after this. Instead, uh, there would be some ad hoc uh local governments in various parts of gaza you know t- trying to turn gaza i think into a, a like the west bank into a a, a series of bantustans, stands uh effectively uh, i don't even know where they would find palestinians who'd be willing to collaborate in that i mean they would be tarred as collaborators if they participated so i'm not even sure uh how they would uh would find anybody willing to do that it's you know it breaks almost every red line that the biden administration has laid out for a post-war settlement uh it certainly breaks uh you know it, it certainly you know kind of flies in the face of any uh calls from either the u.s or arab countries for uh sub- substantive movement toward a palestinian state so it's it's uh you know, almost shocking in the way that they, they're just sort of thumbing their nose. Netanyahu was sort of thumbing his nose, in particular at the U.S. I guess it shouldn't be shocking at this point, but uh, it was stark in in the, the the divergence between what he's talking about, which is what the Israeli government I think is talking about, uh, and what the rest of the world has been talking about uh, in terms of a of a potential post war uh, scenario. Uh,
0: let's move on to Yemen uh, and let's talk about the dual U.S. UK airstrikes there.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to mention this. There's been another round uh, over the weekend uh, of US-UK airstrikes against Houthi targets in northern Yemen. This is the fourth uh, round of strikes that the two militaries have been carrying out since they started the first round on uh, January 12th. Now, the US military has continued pretty much pretty much continuously been attacking uh what it calls in what it calls self defense strikes against uh, you know particular houthi um, missile sites or drones or, or things of that nature uh, all throughout but but in terms of these like major rounds of uh, attacks this was the fourth one it came after uh you know we talked about this last week th- there was you know, a, a flurry of of houthi attacks against uh, red sea shipping including the attack on the the Ruby Mar, which, as far as I know, is still kind of listing in the Gulf of Aden and taking on water, uh, and and kicking oil out, the, the crew has, you know long since been evacuated. There's no, I mean, there's no indication uh, that uh, if if we're still talking about deterrence, and I don't know that anybody even is. Uh, the Houthis, I think, carried out another attack on an oil tanker to no effect, but they they fired on it on Sunday, so the day after this. Uh, this latest round of airstrikes. So clearly they're, you know, they're feeling uh, chastened and deterred uh, as always. Well, mission accomplished. Uh, let's talk about North Korea. Yeah, this was a story uh, earlier this week on Tuesday, the defense minister of South Korea, Shin won uh estimated or, or announced, I guess, the uh, South Korean government's uh, intelligence or its information that uh, said that North Korea has sent Russia uh some sixty seven hundred containers of ammunition uh since september. Uh that at the size of these uh container of these con- con- uh, containers reportedly uh they could hold uh something on the order of 3,152 millimeter artillery shells. Now of course they're not just sending 152 millimeter artillery shells, but uh that's the kind of the haul that we're talking about. And of course these things are all being put to use uh, in Ukraine uh reportedly again according to the south koreans north korean factories are working at full capacity Given all the limitations that you might expect in terms of raw materials and tools and uh, electricity, even uh, to churn out weapons for Russia, in return, uh, and again going by what what Shin uh, was talking about here, uh, the Russians have been sending North Korea uh, parts. They've been sending some of the raw materials that they may not have, uh, but mostly apparently they've been sending food, uh, which you know I, I you know I guess we could. Uh, have a discussion here about uh, the policy, the U.S. policy of uh, strangling the North Korean economy over the last 18 years and starving the North Korean people as a result. Uh, but it seems like that maybe has backfired a little bit because now uh, the Russians are able to get weapons that are sustaining their war effort in in uh, Ukraine because. It has become a war of artillery and, and Russia, just like the West, is, uh, had sort of moved on from that. But North Korea produces a, a fair amount of uh, artillery pretty easily. So uh, it, it, they're sustaining the war effort and they're they're paying food. And I just you know imagine if, if the U.S. had been making sure all this time that North Korean people had enough to eat, maybe uh, things would be a little bit different now not to, to cast aspersions on our uh, grand strategic uh, sanctions policy, of course.
0: Yeah, please don't do that, Derek. Let's talk now about Sudan and Darfur.
1: Uh, Yes, this was a report from uh, the United Nations earlier this week, over the weekend, in fact, that uh, they're claiming that uh, the Sudanese military is blocking humanitarian aid shipments into Darfur from Chad. Chad, of course, borders Western Sudan, including the Darfur region. Uh, Darfur has, of course, been maybe the region hardest hit uh, by the conflict between the Sudanese military and the rapid support forces. We don't Uh, have great information on what has happened in Darfur as opposed to, uh, let's say, Khartoum, where most of the the media reporting has come from. Uh, But Darfur has, by all accounts, been very badly hit. It's involved, you know, it's, it's suffered, its population has suffered uh, a number of attacks on civilians by the RSF, uh, non-Arab civilians, the RSF being a very Arab tribal Rooted institution and organization. Uh, Around 700,000 people have crossed out of Darfur into Chad, but many more than that are still believed to be displaced uh, inside Sudan. So bringing aid into Darfur is critical uh, for those people. The Sudanese military claims that it it, uh, isn't interfering with humanitarian aid, but it does have to keep the border uh, restricted because uh, the other thing that's coming in from Chad is weapons for the RSF. Uh, courtesy allegedly of the United Arab Emirates and the government of Chad and, and various other uh, RSF backers in the region. But still, this is uh, uh, another grim update. Uh, sorry to be uh, – uh, I'm nothing but grim today, I guess. <laughs> yeah, today being the last three years. Uh, why don't we talk yeah. about
0: Senegal for some uh, more grim news? S-
1: yeah, this is I mean, this is a, a strange story. Well, it's not strange, I guess. I, I think you can see where it's going. But uh, I, we've, we've talked about this. Uh, Mackie saw the president of Senegal uh, earlier this month, or I guess by the time people listen to this, it will be last month because they'll be listening to it on March 1st. But uh, the, he uh, postponed the presidential election that was supposed to take place uh, at the end of February. Initially, uh, the Senegalese parliament rescheduled it for the middle of December, uh, but Senegal's constitutional uh, court ruled that that was unconstitutional, and that he w- could not uh, delay uh, the election like that. Uh, it ordered him to hold the election at his at, as soon as possible. Uh, you know, uh, late February was was out by that point. But but Sal has uh, said that he you know intends to uphold the ruling and uh, no problem. We'll have the uh, the election as soon as possible. Well, he held a national dialogue. Uh, this week, to in part settle on a new date for the election. That dialogue, uh, interestingly, did not involve uh, almost any of the candidates uh, who are supposed to run in that election. Most of them boycotted because they were accusing Saul of trying to uh, again manage uh, some way to extend his uh, his presidency. Uh, the dialogue settled on June second uh, as the new as the new proposed date for the presidential election, which is uh, interesting in as much as Saul's term ends on April 2nd. And he said after the court ruling and has said, uh, I think, at more than one occasion uh, since the court ruling that he has no intention of trying to stick around after April 2nd. He's not looking to extend his term. He will be gone. But that doesn't really work then because you've got two full months between Saul departing and the election of a new president, which means Senegal would be without a head of state. And it's unclear how they would proceed even to hold an election uh, without a head of state. So there's been some talk about what can we do in an interim basis. And of course, one of the, at least one of the uh, participants in the national dialogue suggested, well, why don't we just extend the president's term for another two months. And gosh, you know, I don't know if Saul would be in for that, but uh, I bet if you twisted his arm, he might. And then who knows what could happen in June. Maybe it wouldn't be the right time to hold an election. Then either, who knows? American Prestige is brought to you in partnership with The Nation magazine. Please consider becoming a subscriber at AmericanPrestigePod.com forward slash subscribe. As a subscriber, you'll get access to dozens of exclusive bonus episodes, including breaking news specials, deep dives into regional histories, analysis of movies and video games, and much more. And if you subscribe at the founders level, you'll be able to claim a year digital subscription to the nation. Thank you for listening. And now back to the show.
0: Thanks, Eric. Uh, Let's talk about the Ukraine war.
1: Uh, yeah, the uh, there are a few things to talk about here. Uh, I guess the the on the ground, uh, as we talked about last week, the Ukrainian military uh, pulled out of Avdiivka. Uh, in the days since then, uh, the Russian military has been steadily advancing through uh, a number of villages, uh, as the Ukrainian military, I think, is scrambling. Uh, you won't hear that in. Uh, you know, Western media outlets and the Ukrainian government is insisting that they've withdrawn in an orderly fashion to a new defensive line. I think they're still trying to find a new defensive line and are somewhat scrambled uh, at this point, having pulled out of Avdivka. Uh, And and I, I, you know, it doesn't look like there's going to be any huge breakthrough by the Russians, but the Ukrainians are steadily have been steadily giving ground for, for, uh, some time now. Uh, so that's, uh, yeah, that's where things kind of stand on the ground. The, I don't know where you want to go next, Danny. We can talk about the, uh, uh, the G seven debating Russian asset seizures, or we can talk about Macron Emmanuel Macron Let's start Western soldiers. Let's start with, to let's Ukraine. Start with lighter. Was news. I, I was uh, all right. just talking so about this the is Gaul. somewhat <laughs> somewhat light, uh, somewhat lighter, I guess. On Monday, uh, right before uh, ahead of a meeting of European leaders in Paris, uh, the Prime Minister of Slovakia, Robert Fico, said that there was some some impetus or some movement uh, afoot uh, for NATO and or EU member states to send troops to Ukraine. Now, this uh, seemed like a crazy talk, uh, but it was not, apparently, because after the meeting of the European leaders in Paris, Macron, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, uh, gave a, a news conference in which he said in part that Uh, If you're talking about the idea of sending Western soldiers to Ukraine, uh, nothing can be ruled out, this was his quote. We should not exclude that there might be a need for security, which then justifies some elements of deployment. But I've told you very clearly what France maintains as its position, which is strategic ambiguity that I stand by. Nothing should be excluded to pursue our goals. What happened next was sort of an avalanche of people racing, uh, Western leaders racing to every microphone that they could find to disclaim any plan to send soldiers to Ukraine Uh, We had, uh, let me see, just a a brief list here, leaders of Germany, Italy, Poland, Spain, the U.K., the U.S., NATO itself, uh, all disavowed any plans uh, to do this and and suggested uh, effectively that uh, they had no idea what Macron was talking about. Uh, even French officials clarified that he was t- he wasn't referring to combat forces uh, but rather sending soldiers to participate in some support role uh, it, it it all was very interesting and macron was apparently trying to uh, I guess create some sense of uh, uh, what the the smart people like to call strategic ambiguity uh, for Russia and uh, he wound up uh, not doing that creating instead a panic in nato uh, where everybody kind of raced to uh to disavow his comments there's i mean there's a couple of things here and i should say vladimir putin uh, on thursday the president of russia uh, warned uh in a, a speech to parliament uh, among others uh that any uh Deployment of Western troops to Ukraine uh, would risk nuclear war, which is the kind of thing I don't think he necessarily needed to say, but he felt obliged to say it anyway. All of this is is kind of funny. It aligns to the fact that we've been we've we've seen reports that there are uh, already Western forces in Ukraine. I mean, there was a report last year that the u.s has a special operations detachment uh, working out of the ukrainian embassy how you know, they insist they're nowhere near the fighting they're just there to do uh, sort of odd jobs i guess handyman stuff or whatever but you know it's it's uh, it is a little funny that that uh, our friend macron uh, kind of opened his mouth and it didn't go i think the way he was was hoping it would go
0: now let's talk about the g7
1: Yes. G7 finance ministers met in Brazil uh, earlier this week. And uh, one of the items on the table was the possibility of seizing frozen Russian assets uh, and putting them towards financing the the war in Ukraine, either uh, rearming Ukraine or uh, maybe and or uh re- Ukrainian reconstruction in a, in a post war sense. Uh this has been the brainchild uh, apparently of Janet Yellen the the US Treasury secretary uh who's been pitching the idea of at least partially seizing these assets as i say they've been frozen but they're still you know in place they haven't been repurposed for anything. Uh they still you know in theory are are uh, Russia's assets. Um there is a certain amount of enthusiasm for finding a way f- to to make these frozen assets pay off for ukraine in particular uh, as uh, the appetite for western f- money going to ukraine is drying up uh, especially in the us there there are bigger concerns though and i think the biggest concern is that if you take uh, the money that russian oligarchs and other uh, you know the russian government let's say and other uh, unsavory types have uh, have deposited in you know, London banks, Swiss banks, any institution invested—you know, any of these things that have been been frozen—and you seize them and take them away and put them toward Ukraine. You're going to have a lot of other uh, actors who invest a lot of money in Western cities, Western countries, Western institutions. Uh, say, gee, maybe I should take my money out of that place because they could wind up doing the same thing to me someday. Uh, so they really don't want to go down this road and set this precedent because that would be a big financial hit uh, to the West. So, uh, you know, there's discussion going on about this. Is it legal? Uh, could we justify doing it? Uh, what are some, you know, are there some ways to get uh, around this? And, and one possibility I've seen talked about, uh, would be to leave the, the principle in place, these assets, but devote any like interest revenue or other revenues that are generated by the assets, uh, toward Ukraine. But that's, uh, you know, again, it's still, uh, still going on. And this G7 meeting, as I said, was one of the things, maybe the biggest uh, issue on the table and they just were unable to to come to any accord. Yellen pitched it and uh, I think ran into a lot of skepticism.
0: Thank you, as always. Derek, uh, good news. Uh, our long national nightmare is over as Sweeto has...
1: Sweeto. <laughs> Sweeto. Sweeto. Keep it is in, Jake. neato. Keep it in. Sweeto is
0: nito Sweeto NATO. is uh, Sweden has been... Uh, allowed into NATO, Derek. What's going on?
1: Yeah, the Hungarian Parliament uh, voted on Monday. This was expected. Finally, uh, you know, a year and a half or so after uh, after the fact to ratify, uh, voted to ratify Sweden's NATO accession, which uh, closes the deal. Na- Hungary was uh, the last NATO member that, uh, yet to ratify, uh, so Sweden could be officially, formally. Uh, inducted into the alliance at any time. I, I think the hope was it would uh, happen by the end of this week. I don't. Uh, I, I don't think it's happened yet. Possibly because uh, the the vote, the parliament vote, parliamentary vote needs to be signed off by the the president of Hungary, and they just uh, had a little bit of a, a, a changeover in that office. So there's a new president uh, who came in, and uh, maybe hasn't had time yet to to get around to this. Nevertheless. Uh, it should just be a matter of days before Sweden is uh, is officially part of the gang. Uh, the the last uh, bit, piece that that had, I guess, to come together uh, for this vote to happen uh, was Ulf Christensen, the prime minister of Sweden, visiting Hungary uh, late last week on Friday. He and Viktor Orban, the prime minister of Hungary, uh, cut a deal for Hungary to purchase four Swedish fighter jets. Uh, this seems like a very minor thing to have held up Sweden's NATO accession uh, for this long. And I don't think, you know, I don't think that was really what was going on. I think uh, it was a, a symbolic gesture by Sweden that uh, which, you know, Swedish officials have in the past criticized Hungary, as, as have, uh, you know, people all across Europe have criticized Orban for democratic backsliding and, and rule of law violations and all manner of uh, things, his uh, cozy relationship or relatively cozy relationship with Russia. Uh, so, you know, this was a gesture, I think, to say, uh, OK, we didn't mean any of that. And you're fine. Uh, and that was enough to satisfy Orban. So the the vote went through.
0: Thank goodness. Uh, let's move over to the Western Hemisphere and talk about Colombia in which talks with the ELN have been open.
1: Yeah, this is uh, just a few days after ELN and the National Liberation Army Group announced that it was suspending talks with the government. Suddenly, uh, we announced that uh, the Colombian government and the ELN announced that the talks were back on. Uh, I, I think we talked about this last week, uh, The the that ELN had suspended the talks uh, they were upset because uh, one of uh, Colombia's uh, departmental governments or its provincial governments was uh, opening its own separate negotiations with a subset of ELN fighters just uh, geographically located in that state. Uh, and they were worried that this was going to, you know, uh, complicate things with the the national talks. So they uh, kind of in a huff announced that they were suspending talks. I don't know what prompted the about face. Uh, but, uh, they announced on Monday, not only that they had, uh, met again, uh, t- and to wrap up their latest round of negotiations, uh, which were taking place in Cuba, uh, but also announced a new round of talks that will begin in April in Venezuela. So, you know, I guess things are back on track, which is, uh, which is good news. I, I think, uh, you know, not to, not to interrupt all the grim stuff, but, uh, you know, something, something to uh be uh, mildly pleased about.
0: So from good news to scary news. Derek, what is up with these balloons?
1: Yeah, so well this is uh, this is kind of a d- disappointing I think story. Uh there were a number of media outs- outlets that reported uh, on Friday that the US military uh NORAD uh the North American Aerospace Defense Command had begun tracking you got it another balloon. Uh, over uh, U.S. airspace in the Western United States, and so a lot of people got excited uh, that we were having another spy balloon of death story, uh, and it was going to be, you know, the the evil uh, Chinese communists were uh, snooping on us again, and we were going to have to shoot the balloon the, you know, $50 balloon down with another $3.5 million missile or whatever we did last time. Unfortunately, for all of those folks who got a little thrill up their leg over this, uh, it turns out that the this particular balloon was probably not a spy balloon. It was too small. Uh, it's been ca- ca- characterized as a hobbyist uh, balloon, uh, and it wound up leaving U.S. airspace of its own volition anyway. Uh, so uh it kind the of whole, the whole thing kind of fizzled out uh, our apologies to, to to anyone who was emotionally affected by that
0: well thank you everyone we are balloon news and we will see you next week bye bye